Welcome to the June 24th, 2021 episode of Blood Podcast, your source for innovative ideas and cutting-edge information. Our topics are based on articles published in Blood, a journal of the American Society of Hematology. Today, we will review a study that uses a combination of mouse models to identify IL-19 as a potent cytokine capable of promoting expansion and proliferation of neutrophils. Examine the effects of targeted therapies on autoimmune cytopenia in patients with chronic lymphocytic leukemia. And learn about the mechanism of excessive complement activation caused by mutations in factor H-related protein 1 in patients with atypical hemolytic uremic syndrome. Our first topic is a study entitled Osteocytes Regulate Neutrophil Development Through IL-19, a Potent Cytokine for Neutropenia Treatment by Min Zhao, Wu Zhu Zhang, and Wen Liu from Southern Medical University in Guangzhou, China, and their colleagues. Neutrophils are produced in the bone marrow from hematopoietic stem cells that proliferate and differentiate into mature neutrophils during granulopoiesis. Patients with congenital neutrophil deficiencies or iatrogenic forms of severe neutropenia, such as chemotherapy-induced neutropenia, suffer from severe and sometimes fatal bacterial and fungal infections. GCSF is widely used as a treatment of neutropenia, but it is not absolutely required for granulopoiesis. GCSF null mice have approximately 25% residual granulopoiesis, indicating that alternative factors released by cells residing in the marrow might be involved. In this study, Zhao, Zhang, Liu, and colleagues used a combination of genetically modified mice and in vitro models to provide evidence that IL-19 is a potent cytokine capable of promoting expansion and proliferation of neutrophils, and that, surprisingly, osteocytes are the main source of IL-19. IL-19 belongs to the IL-20 subfamily of cytokines, and is produced by activated leukocytes, but also a variety of other tissue cells. Although first reported in 1999, no clear role for IL-19 has yet been defined. Various studies show it can function as an anti-inflammatory as well as a pro-angiogenic factor. Osteocytes are the most abundant cells in bone and are deeply embedded in the mineralized matrix. The primary function of osteocytes is to control skeletal homeostasis but they have also emerged as an important regulator of hematopoiesis. However, their role in neutrophil development and the underlying mechanisms have historically not been well understood. This team started by analyzing the role of mechanistic target of rapamycin complex 1, or mTORC1, in osteocytes. Using an osteocyte-expressed Cree, they generated mice in which the expression of mTORC1 was either increased by deleting its inhibitor, tuberous sclerosis complex protein 1, or decreased by deleting its upstream activator, REB. Since mTORC1 is a master regulator of cell proliferation and metabolism in response to metabolic challenges, their initial objective was to examine the impact on bone mass. Hyperactivation of mTORC1 in osteocytes led to increased bone mass, whereas its inactivation resulted in osteoporosis. Unexpectedly, they also found that neutrophils were significantly increased in mice with hyperactivation of osteocyte mTORC1, associated with expansion of granulopoiesis. 
In contrast, inactivation of mTORC1 in osteocytes induced neutropenia. These in vivo studies were followed by an extensive in vitro characterization of the relative contribution of different cell types to stimulate the proliferation of neutrophil progenitors. This included studying the effects of conditioned media from osteocytes, endothelial cells, bone marrow stromal cells, lymphocytes, and monocytes. Strikingly, only osteocytes recapitulated the in vivo phenotype. Next, using global mRNA expression profiling of mTORC1-activated or control osteocytes, they found that levels of GCSF and GMCSF transcripts were not altered in mTORC-activated osteocytes, but transcripts for IL-19 were elevated 150-fold. Additional studies showed that IL-19 administration stimulated neutrophil development, whereas neutralizing endogenous IL-19 or depletion of its receptor inhibited this process. Importantly, Administration of low-dose IL-19 protected mice from neutropenia induced by chemotherapy, radiation, or chloramphenicol more effectively than GCSF. The authors conclude that IL-19 produced by osteocytes is an essential regulator of neutrophil development and may hold promise as a therapeutic agent for the treatment of neutropenia. Paola de Viete Pajovic from Boston University School of Dental Medicine in Massachusetts nicely summarizes this study in her commentary, Bone and Blood, IL-19 to the Rescue. She notes that it offers two significant advancements in the field. The first is identifying IL-19 as a regulator of neutrophil maturation and proliferation. The second is showing that the osteocytes, and possibly the late-mature osteoblasts, are a major source of this cytokine. Many questions still remain. For example, the tissue distribution of IL-19 and downstream signals have only been partially elucidated, and a clearer picture of the function of this cytokine is required. While still more work is needed, she concludes that this study is a breakthrough in the development of novel therapeutic interventions to treat neutropenic states. Our next paper is entitled Pre-Existing and Treatment-Emergent Autoimmune Cytopenias in Patients with CLL Treated with Targeted Drugs by Candida Vitale from University of Torino and fellow colleagues at multiple centers in Italy. Autoimmune cytopenias are a frequent complication in chronic lymphocytic leukemia, or CLL, affecting 5 to 9% of patients. This includes autoimmune hemolytic anemia, immune thrombocytopenia, or, more rarely, pure red blood cell aplasia, and autoimmune granulocytopenia, which can be diagnosed before CLL, at CLL presentation, or at any point during the course of CLL. Treatment of CLL-associated autoimmune cytopenia is generally primarily directed toward the autoimmune phenomenon, whereas cases that are refractory or occurring in patients with additional signs of disease progression usually receive CLL-specific therapy. Targeted drugs, such as the BTK inhibitor ibrutinib, idolalisib, a PI3 kinase inhibitor, and the BCL2 inhibitor venetoclax, now have a prominent role in the treatment of CLL. However, their impact on CLL-associated autoimmune cytopenia is largely unknown due to the exclusion of patients with active autoimmune cytopenia from the pivotal clinical trials 
and the paucity of studies aimed at addressing the role of these novel inhibitors in the setting of CLL with autoimmune cytopenia. Therefore, the objective of this study was to perform a retrospective analysis of a large multicenter cohort of CLL patients treated with one of these agents. One aim was to evaluate the characteristics and outcome of pre-existing autoimmune cytopenia, and the second was to systematically describe the incidence, quality, and management of treatment-emergent autoimmune cytopenia that developed when a patient was already on CLL medications. The authors collected data from a total of 815 consecutive patients with CLL, treated at multiple centers across Italy that included academic institutions, tertiary care hospitals, and regional hospitals. All patients were followed by physicians experienced in the management of CLL. The study included 572 patients treated with ibrutinib, 9% in combination with an anti-CD20 monoclonal antibody. 143 treated with idolalacib rituximab, and 100 treated with venetoclax, 12% in combination with an anti-CD20 monoclonal antibody. A history of pre-existing autoimmune cytopenia was reported in 104 of the 815 patients. Treatment-emergent autoimmune cytopenia occurred in 1% of patients during ibrutinib therapy, in 0.9% during idolalacib, and in 7% during venetoclax. The estimated incidence rate was 5, 6, and 69 episodes per 1,000 patients per year of exposure in the three treatment groups, respectively. The vast majority of the patients who developed treatment-emergent autoimmune cytopenia carried unfavorable biological features, such as an unmutated IGHV and a deletion of 17P and or TP53 mutation. Notably, despite autoimmune cytopenia, 83% of patients were able to continue the targeted drug, in some cases in combination with additional immunosuppressive agents. In conclusion, ibrutinib, idolalacib, and venetoclax exert a beneficial impact on CLL-related autoimmune cytopenia that exists prior to starting treatment, achieving in most patients an effective control of the autoimmune phenomena in parallel with anti-tumor efficacy. The incidence of treatment-emergent autoimmune cytopenia is negligible in ibrutinib and idolalacib-treated patients, whereas it appeared in 7% of patients receiving venetoclax. However, the risk of autoimmune cytopenia episodes should not limit the use of venetoclax, considering the strong efficacy of this drug in the treatment of CLL, including those patients with high-risk features and the ability to effectively manage autoimmune complications, mostly without treatment interruption. In the accompanying commentary on the study, Carol Moreno, from Hospital de la Santa Crua in San Pau, Spain, notes that the study by Vitale and colleagues represents the largest retrospective series of patients with CLL-related autoimmune cytopenia managed with these agents. She suggests that the results translate to the following management strategies. When no CLL therapy is needed, autoimmune cytopenia should be treated according to existing guidelines for autoimmune hemolytic anemia and ITP. If patients do not respond, they should then be given CLL therapy. In CLL patients in need of therapy who do not achieve a complete remission and subsequently develop autoimmune cytopenia, and in those with concomitant active CLL and autoimmune cytopenia, a frontline CLL-oriented treatment approach should be considered. 
Our final topic is a manuscript entitled The Molecular Basis for the Association of FHR1 with Atypical Hemolytic Uremic Syndrome and Other Diseases, led by Hector Martin Marinero and team from the Centro de Investigaciones Biologicas Margarita Salas in Madrid and other colleagues in Spain. Atypical hemolytic uremic syndrome, or atypical HUS, is a systemic thrombotic microangiopathy due to activation of the alternative complement pathway causing endothelial injury. Mutations in genes encoding complement or complement regulatory proteins can be identified in about half of atypical HUS patients. Most of these mutations are in the gene for complement factor H, a plasma protein that inhibits the alternative complement pathway and most affect the C-terminal regions of factor H. Factor H mutants can still inhibit complement activation in plasma, but cannot bind to cell surfaces to prevent complement activation on cells, which leads to complement-induced damage. Factor H-related protein 1, or factor HR1, originated from a duplication of the gene-encoding complement factor H. Factor HR1 lacks the complement regulatory domains in the C-terminus of factor H, but presents a highly conserved factor H-like C-terminal surface recognition domain. In factor H, this surface recognition domain includes separate binding sites for the thioester-containing domain of C3, closely corresponding to C3D, and sialic acid glycans. In factor HR1, the interaction between its C-terminus and C3D is much less documented, and whether factor HR1 carries a functional binding site for sialic acid glycans is also unknown. It has been postulated that factor HR1 antagonizes factor H regulation by competing factor H binding to C3B, thereby promoting complement activation. This antagonistic role of factor HR1 is referred to as complement deregulation activity. Interestingly, mutations in factor HR1 have also been described in diseases associated with increased complement activation. These include atypical HUS, which can result from mutations in the C-terminal domain of factor HR1. The authors of this study previously identified two different mutations in this region of factor HR1 in 9 of 531 atypical HUS patients. These mutations make this region of factor HR1 identical to factor H. In the current study, the authors used a series of functional studies to characterize these and several additional factor HR1 mutants in order to determine how the enhanced resemblance to factor H could be pathogenic. The results also unraveled the molecular basis of the deregulation activity of factor HR1. Their approach included traditional complement biology tools, innovative experiments such as incubation of kidney sections from complement factor-deficient mice with serum, and elegant structural studies using NMR. In contrast with factor H, they showed that factor HR1 normally lacks the capacity to bind sialic acids, which prevents C3B binding competition between factor H and factor HR1 on host cell surfaces. However, Factor HR1 mutants associated with atypical HUS are pathogenic because they have acquired the capacity to bind sialic acids. This increases the avidity of factor HR1 for surface-bound C3-activated fragments and results in C3-binding competition with factor H. Unexpectedly, they also found that factor HR1 binds to native C3 
in addition to C3B, IC3B, and C3DG. This suggests that the mechanism by which surface-bound factor HR1 promotes complement activation is the attraction of native C3 to the cell surface. While C3B binding competition with factor H is limited to atypical HUS-associated mutants, all surface-bound factor HR1 promote complement activation and C3 deposition at complement-activating surfaces. This activation is limited by the activity ratio of factor HR1 to factor H. Their data also suggest that abnormally elevated ratios of factor HR1 activity relative to factor H would perpetuate a pathological complement dysregulation at complement-activating surfaces. The authors conclude that atypical HUS-associated factor HR1 mutants are pathogenic because they acquire the capacity to bind sialic acids, which allows C3 binding competition with factor H, resulting in increased complement activation on cells. A second conclusion is that the deregulation activity of factor HR1 to promote complement activation is based upon the ability of factor HR1 to bind and attract native C3 to the cell surface. However, with the exception of atypical HUS-associated mutants, factor HR1 binds very weakly to C3B, which eliminates competition between factor HR1 and factor H and prevents the potential damage to cells. In a commentary titled, Losing Control to Bad Relatives, Vahid Afshar Kargan from MD Anderson Cancer Center in Houston, Texas, suggests that further investigation is still warranted in regard to the theory that mutant factor H-related protein molecules bring C3 in close juxtaposition to cells, providing suitable conditions for complement activation on the cell surface. He also notes that while the factor HR1 mutants studied are rare mutations in a rare disease, the results provide a better understanding of complement regulation and an important perspective about the function of factor H family proteins. The findings also show that the complement system still hides many surprises yet to be discovered. For a list of additional authors, as well as more detailed articles and commentaries on which this podcast is based, please go to www.bloodjournal.org. Be sure to join us next week for another episode of Blood Podcast. Thank you for listening.